Let me read to you this morning, chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. I'd initially thought of doing a much longer section, but I want to be able to separate 21 through 25. And so just know that a lot of the argument that Peter is making here is grounded in the verses uh, contained within 21 through 25, but I wanted to be able to look at that specifically in, in more depth and detail. Let me read 18 through 22. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Really, if, if you're to kind of apply what Peter's talking about here, not many of us find ourselves in this slave-master relationship uh, but a large chunk of the people Peter would have written to would find themselves very much at home in that environment. Some of them uh, were slave owners. Some of them themselves were slaves. And so he's addressing a phenomenon that is not something that is in our normal way of life. Now, it's very, very different from North American slave trade. This is first century. And so within this, you find it not people being subjugated on the, on the, the, the subject of their race, but in variety of things. And so I might be able to sell myself into slavery. I'm uh, a part of a country, and my country is overrun, and so all of my fellow countrymen are brought into slavery. And so, but, so we see it's, it's a radically different thing than that which we saw take place in our own country, okay? That doesn't mean it's a good thing. Paul and Peter weren't advocating, saying slavery is the greatest thing in the world. We just need to all endorse it and get on board with it. They weren't seeking to usurp the authority and control of the Roman Empire, they're writing to Christians who happen to find themselves living in the midst of this struggle. And so the closest parallel that we find for ourselves, and this is just, we're just going to jump right into this, is our workplace environment. Now some of you, because your bosses are particularly jerkish, onerous, if you want to get highbrow about it, they are, you don't have a hard time seeing them as masters. You don't have a hard time seeing them as this kind of task mastery type man or type woman. And so when you read this, you're like, oh, this is Bob. Oh, this is Sue. Oh, yeah, man, I wish you would read this. She is, well, I can't say that in polite company, especially not in church. But when you really begin to think of the number of hours you spend in work, and so let's say you start working at 20, which nowadays is more like 30. But let's just say, for math's sake, you start working at 20 and you work to 65 and, and you're really putting in this 40 hours a week and you're getting two weeks of vacation. By the time you add all of this up, that's about 90,000 hours. 90,000 hours you're going to spend with your colleagues and with your coworkers and with your employers. And think about what 90,000 hours begins to look like when you leverage it for the gospel. You have 90,000 hours to be, a mission field, to be on mission in the, in the fire station, to be on mission at L3, to be on mission in a law firm, to be on mission in, in, your, in your play group, to be on mission with other moms. You have this massive amount of time to live on mission, to go behind borders, to go behind walls, to go behind security clearance, to go into all these places, and you have an amazing opportunity before you to be on mission in that environment. And that, friend, is your mission field. God didn't give me the mission field of L3. He didn't give to me the mission field of laying floors and having employees. He didn't give to me the mission field of being a police officer. He didn't give to me the mission field of working for automatic gas. God didn't give me these mission fields. He gave them to you. 
to each and to every one of you. You have a mission field. And in that place of service, this is what you get to make the decision of. Will I live a life surrendered to the gospel or, li- or will I live a life surrendered to convenience and just surviving and making it through for 40 or 45 years and then, fingers crossed, living on a beach in Florida? Amen? Amen. Man, they have hurricanes in Florida. Y'all do not want to go there. And mosquitoes the size of pelicans. I'm from Louisiana, and that's saying something, okay? Let's walk through this. He opens it up, and he just really kind of brings back in line the same verbal idea that he had in verse 13, where he had told us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Here he says, servants, be subject to your masters. And so he writes to a group of people who would have loved the idea that Peter could write to them and say, you're free, go do whatever the heck you want to do. But as we've just read uh, last week, we understand that their freedom is not to be used as an extension of liberty. They need to find themselves, in a very real sense, as those obedient to the call of God on their lives. And so he comes to these people, and he says, be obedient, be subject, be subject. And so he's writing to these folks, and he said, look, this is your role. This is the place where you're at. You need to be manifesting the gospel in the way that you respond to your master. And so this is how you do that. This is how you find yourself in that role, and it is being subject. Now, submission and subjection is not a really sexy topic for us today, right? It's something we really don't enjoy, we don't like to talk about it, we don't like to think about it. Why? Because I want what I want, and I want it now, or I want it yesterday, or I want it five hours ago, and I'm an impatient person. And so when you go to somebody and you tell them, look, Christian, when you find yourself working for someone else, you are placing yourself in submission to them for their agenda. And what do we do? We instantly recoil. We instantly begin to think of all these things that, well, if they tell me to do this, I'm not even doing it. And if they just, oh, man, you just don't understand the people I work with. And if she comes into my office one more time and tells me to work late, I'm going to do that internally because I don't want to lose my job or my 401K. You know what I'm saying, though? But, like, internally, I'm telling her how it's happening. But he writes to them and he says, look, subject yourself. Be submissive. For the Christian, this is this beautiful demeanor. Anyone, anyone can be boisterous and ugly and stand up and demand their rights. And there's something so very fleshly inside of us that wants to call for that. We want to stand up and assert ourselves. We want to stand up and say, no, no, this is my right. You don't understand how these things are going. But the demeanor of the Christian is one of humility. The one of our Savior is one of humility. And so it's this completely countercultural idea for us where the moment we hear this, and I'm right there with you, the moment we hear this, we begin to think of all the various exceptions to the rule. But recognize that's not where Peter starts. Now, he's going to get there, but some of the exceptions that he's going to lay down are probably not the same exceptions that we would have. The best way in terms of the servant-master-boss-employee relationship that you're able to manifest the gospel most readily It's through submission. It's through submission. Be subject to your masters. But he has this gospel turn on it. You see, he's not calling you to be subject to your masters because they can fire you, you, although some of your bosses can. Some of your bosses, it takes a whole committee weeks to meet and to decide and, and meeting with union reps to even give you not a coffee break anymore. But others of you, your capricious boss can come in and say, pack your stuff, you're gone. Pack your stuff, you're gone. 
And so we recognize that in this, Peter could have ultimately said to them, you need to submit to them. Why? Because they own you. But look how he, look how he phrases it. You need to submit yourselves to them with what? With all respect. Now, hidden within the English translation of this word respect is the Greek word fear. Is the Greek word fear. Now, let me ask you a question. Look back up to verse 17. Of the four groups of people that Peter called us to, to identify with, he started and he said what? With the first one. He said, honor everyone. Honor everyone. He goes to the second one and he says, love the brotherhood. And then he turns and he comes to the third directive or the third grouping and he says, fear God. Fear God. In fact, over the course of Peter's letter thus far, he has only ever referenced us being afraid or fearful of one thing. And it's never been man. He has only ever referenced us being afraid or fearful of God. In fact, if you go back to verse Uh, 17 in chapter 1 he says and if you call on him who is father who judges impartially according to each one each one's deeds conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile so peter's understanding of how we respond to our bosses is ultimately a reflection of how we respond to god you cannot respond appropriately in submission to your boss, to your authority figure in your life if you don't appropriately have fear of God. Do you understand that? So Christian, the most important thing for you in response of how you work day in and day out in your various place of employment is ultimately dependent upon how you respond to God. When you understand who God is and who you are, it creates this this healthy sense of understanding and fear. When we understand God, who he is, how holy he is, it engenders, creates in us a healthy sense of fear. And this fear of God allows us then to submit ourselves to those that we may not think worthy, that we may not think valuable, that we may fundamentally disagree with on certain issues. Do you understand how this works? And so Peter's argument, the argument that he's making, isn't that your boss is a great and powerful person, man or woman, and so you need to submit yourself to them. You need to submit yourself to them so you don't lose your job. This is where we think. This is where we think. But in terms of this, Peter's coming in and says you need to submit to them because of who you are before God. God is all-powerful. And when you understand who he is and who you are in him, it allows you to submit. Do you understand the difference? We've got to understand this. So many of us submit and we walk around so incredibly quiet around our places of employment because we're terrified with the people we work around. We're terrified of them that if they really knew this about me, I would lose my job. Friends, God knows all there is to know about you, and you understand all he knows about you. There's only one way you can be in the workplace, and that is to treat your workplace as a mission field. Do you understand that? God has placed you in all these various spheres of influence, not so that you can primarily make a living for your family, but so that you can make a difference for eternity in the lives of all those you come into contact with. This is what he's called you to. So he says, be subject with all respect. He comes in and he understands that that our minds, and we we begin to put in these different groupings and say, oh, but if you only knew what a jerk Bob was. I'm talking like a a jerk on like satanic proportions. There's Satan and then there's Bob. I think Satan goes to Bob's house on the weekends and he's like, tell me how I can be more awful to people. And Satan's just there with his pitchfork. Oh, yeah. I mean, what, what? 
got to be careful of those conversations. Come now, Bob. We recognize that, that our understanding, like I've had some of these bosses that are completely, uh, like there's not, a, there's not a very good word in the English vocabulary to describe them because they're just so annoying, they're so frustrating, they're so unfair. And so he goes into this and he says, not only to the good and the gentle. Have you ever had a good boss? Somebody that you're just like, man, I kind of know people say this all the time, but I would for sure like take a bullet for you or like push you behind something very solid so it would take a bullet for you. Like when you have a, when you have a good boss, when you have somebody that you just really like look up to and respect, it is easy to work hard for this person. It's easy to work hard for this person. When you have a bad boss, it's hard to work hard for that person. It's hard not to be incredibly critical and to see them make decisions and say, I would have made a better decision. To see them at the end of the quarter and, and you're looking at how your, your group, your section did for the quarter and say, if he would have taken my idea, we'd have done so much better. To be incredibly critical of all the decisions they make, but Peter comes into the middle of this. He says, some of you have good and gentle masters. Some of you have good and gentle masters, and you rejoice over the fact that you're able to find yourself submitting to these people. But others of you, and he describes them as being crooked. He uses this word of, of scolios, this, this idea that they're incredibly perverse and crooked, and they are unjust. So this person, and we've all worked for this guy. We've all worked for this guy or this woman, and they're awful. Work can start at 9 a.m. and you show up at 7.30 and they say, so, I see you're, just, you're trying to beat everybody else out. I mean, there's nothing good enough you can do for this person. All of your reports are in on time. You hit every, every marker they give for you to hit financially. Your employees, those that report to you, are all doing a great job. This person always finds ways to kind of usurp the way that you're doing your job. They always find things to look at and say, you know, if Shane did a better job of this, he'd be a good employee, but really he's just a lazy turkey. Or if, if Frank did a better job at this, he'd be a good employee, but let's not even get started. This guy doesn't even approach good. He doesn't even do bad well. You understand what I'm saying? He's just an awful, awful employee. He's such a little turkey. Nobody ever says that, right? Turkey. I don't even know where that came from. We recognize we have kind of this broad spectrum. I one time had a boss that was good, and later on he was bad. It was just really confusing. I showed up after he became bad, and you're like, "Who? where did the good guy go? And I'm fairly certain he was thinking, I ate him. I ate him. I ate the good guy. He was so tasty. But if we look at this, we go to this understanding that some of us are going to have good bosses, some of us are going to have bad bosses, but still the recommendation that Peter is giving here for the best way that we're able to live out the gospel stems from his instruction to submit ourselves, to submit ourselves. So we're submitting to good bosses, we're submitting to bad bosses. Now look at what he goes on to say about this. He says, for this is a gracious thing, or, or for to you this is grace, is a more literal translation. He says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Some of you are going to suffer in the workplace and you're never going to have done anything wrong. Some of you are going to suffer in the workplace and you're never going to have done anything wrong. You are a model employee in every way. And what Peter is beginning to look towards here is not being a poor employee, but it's what happens when you stand up for the gospel and you begin to suffer for it. And that's why he's talking about unjustly. 
Some of you are going to suffer unjustly. And so we begin to respond. What, what's, what's my response in this? What does this look like? And this is where Luke 6 becomes incredibly helpful. Flip over to Luke 6. Luke 6, and starting in verse 27, Jesus has this fundamentally gospel-centric statement on what it's like to live in the midst of difficulty. Something that if we are actually able to begin to apply to our lives in the way that we live, would trans- transform all of our interactions, at least from our perspective. Look what he says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Every time you're in the workplace, you, have, you feel a critique that is unwarranted, you're, you're getting slammed for things that, that are not your fault, you're standing up for the gospel and you're suffering for it, this is where the words of Jesus become incredibly instructive. What does he say? Love your enemies. It's incredibly difficult to love people and to speak ill of them. It's incredibly difficult to love people and to try and usurp their authority, to undermine them, to set them up for failure so that their superior might see them failing and bring action to bear on the situation. What he says here, love them and seek to do good for them. So that's why the idea of subjection is so hard for us and submission. As Christians, we should be about the business of serving others. And we're not primarily just serving those people that we delight and enjoy spending time with. Man, I love spending time with Justin and Jay. Now, the same might not be true for them of me, but I love spending time with Justin and Jay. But say I, say I had people that I worked for that were especially difficult, maybe some of you, Right? And you're especially difficult to work with. And, and, and you just, you browbeat me with all of these accusations and feelings and, and evaluating motives and, and your egg in my car, you're keying it. And then I tell you, that wasn't my car, that was my wife's. And then you begin to feel bad about it. And I was lying, it was really my car, not my wife's car. We switch back and forth to keep you guessing. And so, but in this idea, in this idea, what we look at is, is still no matter your treatment of me, should not change my response to you. What Jesus says here is love your enemies. Love your enemies. It catches all manner of evil in this. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The Christian's response to those people that are especially difficult to work with is to return blessing. So the next time you're tempted to begin to complain internally of how awful your work situation is, remember this idea found in Luke 6. This idea of blessing isn't you thinking of this person saying, God, I just pray that you would bless the socks off Ben because he's such a terrible person. And through this blessing of them, I pray that you make him not quite such a jerk to me. Right? That's a selfish idea. That's a selfish idea. Your idea of blessing is, God, would you reveal yourself to them? Would you begin to change their heart? Not so that they would treat me better, but so they would understand who you are and would glorify God on the day of visitation. Our workplaces are an ultimate place to be sharing the gospel and sharing the gospel through how we respond in the midst of difficult relationships, difficult situations, and difficult punishments that we may or may not feel are warranted. 
Now look what he comes to here in verse 20. Some of us like the idea of being kind of this martyr for the cause. And so he goes on and he addresses that. He says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Peter comes to these people, he says, what are you looking for? What type of award, what type of accolade are you looking for that in the midst of being an idiot and suffering for it, you're able to endure? You're able to endure. So he's actually talking about the slave in the situation who just disobeys their master for, for whatever reason, and they suffer the consequences for it. They're breaking the rules. They're violating whatever instructions they've been given, and so they suffer for it. There is no reward for the Christian towards endurance for just being an idiot in the workplace. If you show up to work, now I've employed a lot of Christians. When I work for Southwestern Seminary, I employed a ton of them, here slightly less, in terms of number, not, you understand? <laughs> you guys are not really rolling very fast this morning. And you should have said, oh, which one? Justin, they were thinking you, but you know. <laughs> but there's this thing that, that I've observed the Christians have an unfortunate knack of using their Christianity as an excuse for laziness. They have an unfortunate knack for using their Christianity as an excuse for laziness. I worked, uh, the first pastor I worked for had been a pastor out in Vegas for a number of years. And he said that a number of the guys that he uh, had in his church, they would not hire Christians. They would only hire Mormons. I said, really? Why wouldn't you hire Christians? Why would you hire Mormons? He said, because these, these guys will get in and they will work their socks off. I mean, they're just, they will work sun up to sun down. They are killing it to get it done. Christians, they're just lazy. They're just lazy. Can I tell you, the gospel should absolutely transform how you enter the workplace. The gospel should absolutely, fundamentally alter what you do. Why? Not because you're not trying to impress your boss. You have an understanding, you have a respect, a fear of who God is, and this translates the way that we get stuff done. Christian, you are representing the gospel, not only in your responses to your boss, but in your work ethic. And so Christians, we have an amazing opportunity to display the gospel, our submission to it, and our exaltation of God in the amount of stuff we get done and how we get it done. We have to be these people that are absolutely killing it in the workplace. Why? Because this is what it is to be a Christian. We don't apply the gospel just to, to little bits of our life. We don't apply the gospel just in our family and say, oh, the gospel reigns supreme in our family. We have a devotional every night. Oh, the gospel reigns supreme in my church. We sing songs to Jesus every weekend. The gospel, if it's in you, affects every avenue and area of place you go. So you go on holiday, it goes with you. You're in the midst of a difficult situation at work or in school, it is there with you. And when the gospel begins to translate into every area of your life, and it is permeated to the very base of your core, it'll translate everything you do. It'll translate everything you do. And so you're not primarily just suffering because you've disobeyed. But you're suffering because you've absolutely engaged the gospel. You know, the truth of it is that many of us don't suffer in our places of work for the gospel because this is, this is what it's like for most of us. You're going to work at a place for any number of years. You're going to die. 
the weather's nice and people don't have something more pressing, urgent, or delightful to do, they're going to come to your funeral. And this is going to be the situation that plays out in far too many of our funerals. People are going to come to your funeral. They're going to hear things said about you, your involvement with the church, and what a godly person you are. And you know what your coworkers are going to say? I never knew that about him. Never knew that about her. Worked with them for 20, 30, 40 years. I had no idea they were a deacon. Because there is no real distinction between you and the people you work with. Most of us have given up the idea of manifesting the gospel in our places of work because it's too costly for us. It's too costly for us. We have a plush pension. We have great benefits. We've got a good salary. We've got stability. And so we pack out on the gospel. We'll say, hey, look, if I find time after 5 o'clock in the, in the 30 minutes we have this person over once a year, then I'm just going to unload the gospel machine gun on them. I'm just going to start throwing tracts and Bibles, and I'm going to pin them all underneath their windshield. Find times and opportunities within the normal ebb and flow of your work to manifest the gospel. If we were to go and to poll the majority of our coworkers and to say, hey, how, what, do you know about, what do you know about, let me just, Mozambique. There's nobody here named Mozambique, right? What do you know about Mozambique's work ethic? Do they, do they display the gospel in this? And they say, you know, I think they may be a Christian. And I say, really, why, why do you think they may be a Christian? And they say, well, you remember a couple of years ago when it got really nasty around Christmas and everybody's like, happy holidaying? This person came over to me and whispered in my ear, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> That's creepy on all kinds of levels. <laughs> Man, there's so much happening in our culture in the newspaper every single day. The gospel absolutely can weigh in on these issues. Maybe you need to read more to be able to describe the things that are taking place and what God would say about them and what the Christian's response is to them. But each of us have an opportunity to be an ambassador for Christ in all the various places we work. And so you're able to look at the headlines and talk about Fort Worth's uh, deal on gender identity. And you're able to say, this is what the gospel would say to that. And you know what they're going to expect? They're going to expect you to be hateful and harassing and demeaning. There's no place for that. Everyone you disagree with is made in the image and the likeness of God. This means that everyone you disagree with, ultimately you go to them and you say, Susan, let me, let me tell you how you're a person worthy of the gospel. This is your thinking. Maybe you're not saying that out loud, but you're going to them recognizing that this is a person for whom Jesus Christ died. And they're just as worthy of the gospel as you are. And knowing this, understanding this, understanding how valuable they are to their creator, to your creator, it changes how you engage them. You find yourself being able to love people that are especially difficult. Why? Because you recognize their worth in view, as viewed from their creator. And so you're not seeing them ultimately as an ideology that you have to change. You're seeing them as a person on whom the love of God rests and the wrath of God is coming lest they surrender themselves to the blood of Jesus. It's an urgent matter. It's an urgent matter. So he comes in, and he says, but what 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Some of us are going to suffer in our workplace because we stand up for the gospel. Some of you are going to be asked to do things that are immoral, unethical. You look at it and it's just patently sinful. And you're going to face a choice in that moment. Do you submit yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ to live out all the implications of the gospel? Or do you take the path of least resistance? Let me describe to you what the path of least resistance looks like. You keep your job. Keep your pension. Keep your benefits. But you're selling out on Jesus. And nobody has to know. A time is coming, and it is already, when to be a Christian and to be salt and light in the workplace and in the community is going to cost you something. One of the reasons we've gotten to the state in this country that we're in is because for too long we recognized the cost was too high. And so we were Christians on Sunday mornings, we were Christians on Wednesday nights, and everybody was a Christian on the holidays. But we were never a Christian in the workplace. 90,000 hours. Over 10 years of your life. No sleeping, no messing around, just working. Think of the difference you can make. If you begin to leverage every single one of those hours for the expansion of the gospel, think of the amazing things God could do. When you look at it, you say, tomorrow morning, I've got 40 hours to live for the gospel at L3. Tomorrow morning begins 40 hours for living for the gospel in this role or that role or this school or that school, in this relationship, in this friend group. You've got a new set of 40 hours. Tomorrow, maybe you've got seven or eight hours with with a group of people. Think of the difference you can make if you begin to dedicate that time to leveraging conversations, leveraging and marshalling your resources and times and intellect for the expansion of the gospel. God can make a profound change in this society through us by the power of his Holy Spirit, but not, not if we're content just to let it slide. Not if we're content, and let me be clear on this, to be disobedient. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you and Got to recognize that every work situation is different. We want to be smart. We want to be wise. We want to be sensitive. So God, I pray that you would help us to be creative in our expressions of the gospel. God, I help you. I pray that you'd help us to be uh, sensitive. Some of our coworkers might have been beat over the head uh, with the gospel before, and they see it as this ugly thing of of rules and requirements in a hateful God. Help us to be winsome. 
But God, help us to see the urgency. Father, my prayer for the people in this room is that they would surrender themselves to you, that each of them will begin to see themselves as having an opportunity to live on mission for you in all the places you've taken them. So maybe for some of us that means not retiring, but to continue to redouble our efforts to reach our coworkers. For some of us that means taking a job where you're putting us directly in contact with those who disagree with us ideologically. So, Father, for them, I pray that you would season their speech as with salt. You would help them to have a great control of their tongue. And that you would call the rest of us to pray for them. Father, I'm thankful for the role of your spirit in calling us to various places of employment. God, look, we pray for so many things. I pray that you would just help us to be found faithful. That the gospel of Jesus Christ that we were far off from you and struggling in sin, but you sent your son to come and live a perfect and sinless life and to die in our stead and then to raise, be raised from the dead and to sit at your right hand exalted forevermore that the gospel of Jesus Christ of sins forgiven might be displayed in our lives and might be that thing to which we seek to live in allegiance to each and every day. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.